Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. As listeners know, the Therapy for Real Life podcast aims to translate therapy concepts into actionable self-care strategies for everyday use, which is why I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Nate Zinser to the show today. He is the Director of Performance Psychology at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Harper Collins is releasing his latest book called The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. In the book, Dr. Zinser shares experiences and tips from his career training the minds of the U.S. Military Academy's cadets and world-class athletes. Dr. Zinser has coached a Super Bowl MVP, numerous Olympic medalists, professional ballerinas, NHL All-Stars and College All-Americans, teaching them how to overcome pressure and succeed on the world's biggest stages. Dr. Zinser has been a consultant for the FBI Academy, U.S. Army Recruiting Command, and the Fire Department of New York. He earned his PhD in sports psychology from the University of Virginia, and I hear he has a senior black belt in karate. Dr. Zinser, thank you for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I will try to live up to my hype. <laughs> well, can you tell me why did you decide to write a book about confidence? Because too many people keep kept walking into my office saying, I used to think I was pretty darn good and I've just lost all my confidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that being called in baseball or maybe it's all sports. I don't know. You tell me the yips. Sometimes um, people will talk about it that way. Yeah. The, the yips tends to refer to a particular moment or a particular skill that uh-huh. suddenly seems to disappear um, uh-huh. under the pressure of performance. Um, uh-huh. I certainly deal with that situation, um, but my attraction or interest in writing a book about confidence had more to do with the perhaps more general feeling of, mm-hmm. gosh, I just don't think I'm up to it. Mm-hmm. I used to think I was up to it, but now I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit more then for us, because I know the, the book helps us with this. What is confidence? What isn't confidence? Dispel some of those myths for us. Okay. Well, that's a great big question. Um, I'll try not to ramble too far on it. Um, My operational functional definition of confidence, not to be confused with any dictionary definition, is this. Confidence is your sense of certainty about any given ability that allows you to execute or perform with that ability pretty much unconsciously without talking yourself through each step without criticizing or overanalyzing what you are doing. It's looking at a target or deciding on an outcome and then somewhat passively allowing your trained in capability to express itself. Um, One common example I cite is the state of mind you're in when you tie your shoes. Now, shoe tying, when you think about it, is a pretty darn complicated activity. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of muscles, dozens of bones and joints, hundreds of nerve endings, 
all of which have to operate in precise coordination in order for you to get your shoes tightened properly on demand. Once upon a time, you had to think your way through it. But at some point you decided, hey, I know how to do this. Mm. I'm certain about it. And now you can execute that relatively unconsciously. Um, I made a comment in a, another recent interview about, have you ever watched a skilled sommelier open a bottle of wine at a restaurant? Mm. That individual can talk about the menu, mm. describe the specials of the day, and at the same time, insert the screw, put the pressure on it, turn it the number of times, get the little lever attached to the lip of the bottle, and pop goes the cork, and here comes your wine. And she executed that without any conscious, discursive thought process as she was doing it. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about in terms of confidence, mm -hmm. that, well, that sense of certainty. Yeah, and I appreciate how you... I can hear in your definition, you draw a straight line from that sense, that sensation of confidence related to what you know you are able to do. And the part of the definition is it propels you towards doing it. It's effective by definition. Yes. It helps you get it done. Right. So it's not some something else that we might confuse with confidence like arrogance or uh, overestimation of your competence, your you're, you're making that distinction right in the definition. You're saying, actually, you're, it's the awareness of your ability to do something that propels yeah, you, you forward to you, get it done. You make a, an important distinction between the functional confidence that I help people achieve and the outspoken arrogance that is sometimes, unfortunately, linked to any kind of confidence. We all may have had the experience of being around or seeing a outspoken, confident, borderline arrogant individual who likes to talk about him or herself. And this person may have considerable, considerable ability, but it's somewhat irritating to be around that person because they're so darn full of themselves. And so we create this connection between confidence, the good kind that helps you perform, and arrogance, conceit that is, you know, socially kind of disruptive. Mm -hmm. The important message for your listeners is that you can have a ton of the important internal functional confidence and still be a very polite, respectful, respectful, nice to be around individual. Mm -hmm. Let's not confuse those things. Mm -hmm. You can also have lots of that internal sensation of confidence and not yet have the experience or mastery of that skill set that you could have that misalignment. So the functional, effective confidence that you're training people to have is the awareness of what they can and can't do. In fact, you allude to that as one of the skills, accepting what you cannot change. I imagine that's part of that awareness. Yeah, absolutely. The, the trick for all of us is to do what we need to do to develop our competencies, mm -hmm. um, personal and professional. And at the same time, we have to develop confidence or certainty in those various 
competencies. Mm -hmm. um, I will be the first to say that, you know, success in human performance, whether we're talking competitive sports, whether we're talking business, whether we're talking performing arts, is a combination of both competence and confidence. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very important series of exercises to take yourself through so that you become aware of your competences and then actually allow yourself to trust the level of competence that you have indeed achieved mm -hmm. through you know the required training and practice mm -hmm. um, most of the people that i am in contact with who i mentor have learned to discount a lot of their competencies mm. they're pretty darn good at what they do but their thoughts about themselves the memories that they choose to entertain and maintain mm. tend to be about their mistakes about their difficulties about their setbacks and hence their actual level of competency does not express itself does not manifest does not materialize when it's time to actually serve the tennis ball or mm -hmm. uh, engage in that heart bypass surgery or take the midterm statistics exam mm -hmm. because they're so full of worry and self-doubt and memories of failure and difficulty as opposed to the memories of the progress they've made in understanding the material, the success that they have indeed had at many other points in their past. Mm -hmm. And it's using all those thoughts in the most constructive functional matter that allows the sense of certainty to um, surface. Mm -hmm. And hence that allows the full degree of one's competency to express itself on demand. Mm -hmm. So confidence sounds like a, a specific part of this process and the, the outcome of successful sports psychology. I'd love to hear you talk more broadly about what is sports psychology? What are the, what are the parts to that? Say you're, say you're translating this for your first year grad students interested perhaps in becoming a sports psychologist or someone going into an office saying, hey, I'm interested in sports psychology. What should I, what should I expect? Um, my understanding of the field, the way I was trained some 40 years ago, um, sports psychology really looking at the role and the effect of belief systems, overall attitudes, and indeed minute by minute thinking habits on human performance. Mm -hmm. the, the field really got started back in the 80s, looking at the effect of attitudes, beliefs, thought processes on athletic performance, but it has since broadened itself um, to include all kinds of performance situations, not just football, basketball, swimming, wrestling, etc., but, you know, performing artists, stepping up on a stage, um, medical personnel, surgeons, trial lawyers, any situation where you actually have to deliver, express something that you have learned or developed some competency in, sports psychology applies to all of that. And most certainly, 
in the military context. Um, you talk about a performance situation, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. arguably the most stressful experience a human being can be in. Mm -hmm. Ground combat, bullets flying. Boy, you want to have a lot of certainty about yourself. You want to be able to focus on what's important. You want to be able to maintain the proper emotional state in those very, very, very difficult situations. And here at the Military Academy, a program designed to teach our cadets who will be leaders, platoon leaders upon graduation, a program of systematic training in these skills was, was begun back in the late 1980s and continues right to this day. Mm -hmm. um, we all acknowledge, wow, you got to be confident. Yeah, you got to be focused. Yeah, you got to you got to be composed. Okay. But do you do anything about it? Do you actually train yourself in these in the various mental skills that lead to these qualities? Um, I ask people all the time, how important is that stuff? And they all say, oh, they're really important. Oh, okay. Well, you seem like a pretty smart person. If it's that important, I figure you work on it, don't you? And they all look at me cross-eyed. Oh, I don't, didn't know you could work on that stuff. Yeah, you can work on that stuff. <laughs> Talk more about that disconnect. People don't do it. Is that because they don't know how to do it? They've never done it before. They don't take it seriously, perhaps. I think it's a combination of they don't know how to do it. And they haven't understood or taken the time to kind of demystify a state. Oh, yes, I want to be confident. Oh, I want to be focused. Mm -hmm. That's just sort of an abstract concept. Mm -hmm. And people leave it at that, mm -hmm. as opposed to breaking it down mm -hmm. to its component parts mm -hmm. and then doing the necessary practice mm -hmm. so that you develop skill and the skills lead to various qualities. If you want to improve your tennis serve, okay, mm -hmm. well, you get out on the court with a bucket of balls and you have a coach and you work on your toss and your backswing and your follow through and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. If you want to improve your confidence, you have to work on improving the quality of your memories, the quality of the stories that you tell yourself in the present, mm -hmm. and the quality of the still shots and short video clips that that wonderful video production studio, which is your imagination, is producing. Right. Pretty much around the clock. Right. You have you have to take responsibility to work these various parts of you, just like you take responsibility to go to the weight room and swing the kettlebell or mm -hmm. get under the barbell and do the squats. Mm -hmm. And where would you begin? So if someone's starting to improve their their psychological performance and they do have instant replays of negative experiences or doubts, you know, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome, they've never done it before. Would you spend a lot of time getting awareness of that current script or would you jump right to other skills? Where would you start? I tend to start, well, once there's a, a glimmer of understanding between how you think and the emotional state that that puts you in and the physical state that that emotional state puts you in, 
and then the level of performance that your physical state is influencing and how those things all cycle together. Once we have an appreciation of that, I tend to begin with, okay, let's see if we can really improve the qualities of your long-term memories. And mm -hmm. I do an exercise that I, that I call the top 10. Mm -hmm. Tell me about successful, fulfilling moments that you have had in your chosen field, your profession, your sport, whatever. Tell me about another one that brings up the same kind of feelings mm -hmm. of satisfaction. And we construct a list, mm -hmm. top 10 memories. Mm -hmm. We'll put that in a great big sign. We'll big block letters, print that out, laminate it, post it on your bulletin board. You know, that's where we get started. And it's the act of going back to those memories and allowing them to produce a sense of optimism, a sense mm -hmm. of energy. Um, that's that's the first that's the first exercise that's like you know going down to the bank the greatest with a, with hits a, with, a, with a handful of checks yeah. say hey i want to open up an account here i want to deposit these psychological memories into your psychological bank account mm -hmm. so that you have something to draw upon when you are called upon to give your presentation or play against that opponent or whatever it might happen to be and the reason that works, you share, you share in the book, there are very strategic ways that we think about memories. We're supposed to frame mistakes as temporary and isolated and not take it personally. This is not our whole be all identity. We're not complete failures. They happen to, they're, they're great for mining lessons, you say. Meanwhile, successes are a sign of our global just potential and skill set and experience and wisdom that we're supposed to be a little bit um, picky and choosy about that in terms of mining, mining yeah. our memory. Yeah, it's all it's all about perspective. Okay, we we are going to slip, fall, backslide, and it's important to keep those not so constructive moments in their proper perspective. Yeah, okay, you made the mistake or yeah, you got the bad grade, it happened. But let's not read into it too far. And, and we tend to do that. It's like we've been socialized to interpret our imperfections as pretty much definitive statements about ourselves. Um, there's a strong cultural force for that, which Confident people have learned to resist. Um, and I say, you know, resist socialization in the in the constructive uh, in, in a constructive sense. So keeping a failure, keeping a loss in its proper perspective. Yes, it happened. Probably stings a little bit, but it was just that particular one at that particular time in that particular setting. And that's where it stays mm -hmm. in the past, in that one place. We don't generalize it. We don't think of it as a recurring event. We don't think of it as happening in lots of other contexts and situations. Mm -hmm. And very importantly, 
you don't interpret it as the definitive statement about who you are. I mean, that right there really reminds me of mindfulness, really trying to pay attention to the moment, the context. There was a a particular cause and effect that led to that Mm -hmm. situation. And it's not, you know, practicing that non-judgmentalness, not mistaking that with now and not getting lost, not numbing out on the present because you're, I imagine that's a big part of the blocks that folks come to you with when they get hung up on the past, they're still thinking about yes, it. Yeah. I, I've had people come into my office who could relate to me in exquisite detail all the failures of their past season or mm. their past year. Mm. Um, and I really got to work hard and, and, and be patient with them and bring their attention to, okay, can you talk about some progress? Can mm. you talk about some success yeah sometimes it takes a while so mm-hmm. you know the a lot of us have developed an ineffective filter for our memories and for our in the moment self-talk mm-hmm. we let in a whole lot of memories about setbacks and mistakes and difficulties and we're somewhat hesitant to let in the memories of effort, success, and progress. Once we do that, however, it certainly changes our mood and it certainly changes our energy level. Mm. I, I have found as a therapist, sometimes it's hard to, to, to <clears throat> help people <clears throat> make that switch. Maybe, a, maybe someone told them to do that negative mental filter or the culture, like you said, we have a burnout culture and, and the best way to kind of show someone an alternative to that way of thinking is trying it another way and seeing mm-hmm. the impact on your performance. And I wonder how you've helped people do that, make that switch. Well, the people that I work with, and whether we're talking about um, a division one NCAA collegiate athlete or a college student who is looking to go on to medical school, et cetera, I typically take them back to the time in their life when they experienced a little bit of success and then had this desire to become better at whatever it was. Mm. And they expressed an interest to mom, dad, older sister, older brother, um, their cool aunt Mary or uncle Mike, or you know some kind of teacher, some kind of knowledgeable person you express the question, well, how do I get better? And almost inevitably, the answer to how do I get better? How do I improve is work hard, practice more, think about what you're doing. Mm. Okay, now there's some truth in that. In order to develop competence, you do indeed have to analyze your weaknesses. You do indeed have to put in the physical effort. You do indeed have to work, practice, study. But in the process of doing that over a period of months, years, in some cases, decades, in the process of that 
attention paid to improving your weaknesses, being serious, you almost always develop the habit of over-analysis, over-judgment, and over-criticism. It's, it's almost an inevitable side effect in the process of striving for improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, that willingness to work hard, you know, you can, you can call it that inner workhorse. That's a very desirable thing. Mm-hmm. You got to honor that. But you also have to honor your inner racehorse. The part of you that just looks and reacts rather than analyzes, judges, criticizes when you are in a performance moment. So it's honoring the inner workhorse and then honoring the racehorse and enabling that racehorse to come up to the starting gate with energy and clarity. And when you get the ready, set, go signal, that racehorse is out of the gate doing what she's been trained to do. Whereas the workhorse is just sort of plodding along, taking care of things in sequence, making sure that everything is being done right. The, the human nervous system operates better when you take a lot of that self-analysis and self-consciousness out of the picture. Mm-hmm. When those parts of your brain, when those neural structures that are really not involved, not necessary to the performance of the task, to playing that concerto, to swinging the bat when you see the right pitch. Mm-hmm. You don't need those parts of your brain in order to do those things. Mm-hmm. Let them go. But yeah. unfortunately, we've been socialized to think so analytically about what we're doing. It's part of being serious. It's part of taking yourself seriously. It's a part of being a mature individual. Think about what you're doing, kid. Right, right. Okay, Sometimes yeah, yeah, that can there's a time and a place for that kind of punitive or punishing and and that that takes a lot of energy out of the body budget and so when we think of those really successful moments where you're in the sweet spot of flow state Mm -hmm. you're not being hypercritical you're you're using a little bit more of that water off a duck's back skill of letting it go and so so helping people understand that they're they're I explain it as an invisible form of self-harm when you're talking to yourself that way. And it, it's, you can't see it, but just like biting your fingernails or drinking or drugging to numb out, you're, you're punishing yourself. It's a way of tricking yourself into thinking you're doing something. Your work shows and research shows that it's more effective to try something else instead. Could you talk a little bit about visualization? Certainly. Um, I've talked a little bit about memories, how we think about our past. We've talked a little bit about the stories and the self-talk that you have about yourself in the in the present. Mm-hmm. I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. But da 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 da. Then there's the way you think about your future. Your imagination. Uh, We have a very evolved, very complicated, very, very uh, effective video production studio in our skulls. We can create pictures. We can create scenarios. We can create little movies about 
futures that have not yet happened. Okay, let's take advantage of this. By the way, when we do engage our imagination, it's not just an idle mental process, but when we engage our imagination, we stimulate all kinds of other systems in our body. When we engage our imaginations, we get our muscles, our heart, our lungs, our gustatory uh, equipment, our visual equipment stimulated as well. So the idea of getting a mental rep for the purpose of you know, rehearsing for a game, rehearsing for an exam, rehearsing for a sales presentation, we're actually accessing and stimulating the same neural circuits and neural pathways that we will actually be using when we're in the moment executing. So let's prepare those neural pathways. Let's get them, let's give them more practice. Let's streamline them. You know, the neurons that fire together tend to wire together. So we're actually carving deep grooves, deep tracks in our skull so that nervous impulses can travel quickly down a, down a super highway as opposed to a bumpy dirt road. So I urge all my clients to get really good at thinking about what you want. Mm. How, do you, how do you want this sales presentation to turn out? How do you want this lacrosse game to turn out? That's easy. Now, how do you want to feel as you're going in? How do you want to feel at the start? How do you want to feel at certain key moments in the game? And very importantly, how do you want to respond if a few things don't go right? If you know, you're in the middle of a sales presentation and there's a power outage and your AV material all gets blanked out, are you ready to be graceful and communicative and engaging without your PowerPoints, without your materials, whatever? Have you anticipated that? I refer to it as a flat tire drill. Do you know how to change a flat tire in your car? Have you practiced that? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to be doing that for the first time ever in the dark, in the rain, on a strange road, when you're in the hurry to get somewhere. By the same token, have you thought about the things that could go wrong and then thought a whole lot more about how you're going to get back on track when they happen and then visualize, envision how it's going to be as you get back on track and the result in that moment that you're going to, that you wish to achieve. So you've talked about visualizing, you know, you call them doing the flat tire drill. I think of them like those curveball experiences and mm -hmm. really engaging that mindset of confidence of I'm the best one prepared to handle this. I'm in the zone in that way, even if, even if that happens. What about creating a, a breakthrough deja vu, deja vu experience? What is that? Well, that's really getting your imagination to work at how exactly do you want it to be and what is it going to be like? Can you envision the room you will be performing in? 
can you envision the quality of the lighting, the, the, the temperature of the air? Um, if you are performing, what's the audience going to be looking like? Where's the scoreboard? Where's the American flag in the stadium? Do you take time to sort of look around and attune yourself to whatever arena you will be performing in? And then use your imagination to say, okay, I'm going to be in this place and I'm going, I want to execute this way. And then you have to go back and, you know, change your costume and get your uniform right. And maybe it's half an hour later, maybe it's two hours later, maybe it's even the next day or the next week that you are stepping into that arena, you know, in actuality for the real performance but you've kind of fooled your nervous system into thinking that you've already been there and done that. Mm -hmm. And so you walk into this arena with a sense of familiarity, with a level of ease about yourself. It's like, oh, I've been here before. Mm -hmm. I know how I want to be. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel, I kind of feel great about this moment. It's, crea it's creating that deja vu of the breakthrough that you desire. Yes. Yeah, so Are you willing like muscle to use... memory? Well, muscle memory, Anna, is a wonderful term um, that unfortunately has no, no actual basis in physiological science. Uh -uh. Um, unfortunately, people use that term. But the fact of the matter is that your muscles have absolutely no capacity to remember anything. All your muscles do is respond to a nervous impulse to twitch uh -huh. or to relax. Uh -huh. I mean, your muscles are just, you know, good little worker bees. Right. They have no capacity to remember everything. So what we're talking about with the term muscle memory is actually a subroutine built into your nervous system that mm -hmm. informs those various muscles when to twitch and when to relax. And if we're trying to serve a tennis ball or hit a golf ball or, you know, swim a 200 meter breaststroke, we're talking about thousands of neurons all firing in a precise, relatively unconscious pattern. That's what muscle memory is. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's a good example of the myth of the mind-body disconnect, the way exactly. you think is, has direct relevance on your physical performance and some of it is automatic or even involuntary but practiced you get yourself in a groove mental groove and once you trust all that pro practice mm -hmm. you have an opportunity to execute unconsciously with a considerable lack of self-consciousness mm -hmm. and that's the way the nervous system works best mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate an important distinction. You're, you know, here I am visualizing all those folks who come in their first day with you. you. You mentioned how many of them come having had bad experiences and you're training them performance-wise to, to mine their experiences for successes to build off of that. And so when we think of sports psychology and some of the, the visualization tactics or thinking about performance, we're really making a big distinction uh, from rumination 
<clears throat> rumination, just, oh, just oof, kind of that mental hand washing of thinking about your mistakes over and over and over again. You talked about the 30-10 rule. So allowing yourself to think about the worst case scenario for up to 10 seconds, but then the 30 seconds that follow or how you would handle that situation, visualizing coping. So building your bank account, again, of your confidence that if anything pops up, I'll be able to handle it. Indeed. And you'd be surprised at the, the ability of a human being to respond constructively to the most outlandish and unexpected turn of events, provided he or she has done a lot of flat tire drills and has rehearsed the process of coping with a, a weird situation. Um, there's several stories in my book about athletes who did a whole lot of flat tire drills in anticipation of things that they thought might happen. And then they get in the arena and we're talking about the Olympic trials. We're talking about the biggest track meet in the world outside of the actual Olympic games. And a couple things happened that no one could have anticipated. And yet, because they've practiced this idea of being in control of their imagination, mm -hmm. they, they cope with these unexpected, unfamiliar, completely off the wall occurrences with ease and confidence and trust. And they end up doing really well. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a, another question for you, Dr. Zinsler. So I noticed, you know, your book has uh, language like battle tested, mental toughness. You mentioned a skill in there, uh, shooter drills. And I'm curious if you are intentional about the, the language that you use. Um, just, just curious about how you use language in that way. And noticing, you know, if we change rooms, if we go to an HR space, you might hear a manager talking about soft skills. Uh, but the way you describe tactical drills and and performance strategy, it sounds much more rugged to me, the way that you've branded some of these, um, you might hear about them and other concepts, you know, talking about mental health, but you picked a term like confidence. It's not a, it's not a diagnosis. It's something that anyone can participate in. Um, does that have to do with the experience that you draw from or anything else? Is, are you trying to reach someone um, in particular with that language? Well, it's a result of some experiences that I've had, you know, personally as an athlete, as an adventurer, as a martial artist. Um, and it also has a lot to do with the reality that I have been working in here at the, U the United States Military Academy for like 30 years. Um, the term mental toughness, I think is a valuable term when you look at it a certain way, most people, you know, have a sense of that term. And I think most people would tend to think of it as being, all right, I'm very determined. I'm kind of hard on myself. I'm, I'm disciplined. Um, I get up at 530 in the morning and I do my, and, and I go to the gym and I'm very rigorous with my diet 
and they think of mental toughness in terms of actions. Um, I tend to think of mental toughness as the idea of getting your mind to a particular state mm -hmm. and keeping it there. So the mind itself is tough mm -hmm. and circumstance, a setback, change of the weather, change of the venue, last minute change of logistics, that doesn't affect my mind. My mind itself is tough. The way I think about myself is pretty tough, pretty constant, pretty consistent. You know, um, everybody can think of a, you know, an object that is rather tough. You know, all the, those iron weight plates at the gym. You can you can drop one on the ground, and hopefully your toes aren't anywhere near it. Um, mm -hmm. But the weight plate doesn't break. You can leave it out in the cold. It won't crack. You can leave it out in the hot sun. It won't melt. Regardless mm -hmm. of the external conditions, it stays the same. Mm -hmm. That's the way I think about the mind. How mm -hmm. do you want to be in that exam? How do you mm -hmm. want to be in that relationship? How do you want to be um, serving for the championship at your local tennis club or, or, or whatever performance situation matters to you how do you want to be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and can you look at that as tough-mindedness not necessarily being angry or violent or rugged just consistent mm -hmm. i'm not going to change mm -hmm. even if a few things go wrong i may i may alter a few things strategically or technically but emotionally i'm not going to change Mm -hmm. I'm going to be consistent, tough in a manner of speaking. Right. Good endurance, stable. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I may have to maintain that for the entire three plus hours that I'm running the marathon. Mm -hmm. I may mm -hmm. have to maintain that 60, 75 times when I'm on the golf course just prior to hitting the ball. It's going to be somewhat situation specific, but that idea of being consistently in the best frame of mind is, is the way I think of mental toughness. Mm -hmm. Now, my last uh, question for you, Dr. Since are you share in the book how confidence is not a fixed state, it interacts uh, with context and experiences. And so I was curious how you maintain your confidence. How do you uh, run drills for yourself at this point? You have a lot of experience. You have, um, I imagine, a good bank account of, of toughness to draw from. And yet I, that, that fitness that you describe requires practice and and challenge how do you how do you take on confidence challenges for yourself hour by hour uh is is the is the correct answer um one of the glaring misconceptions about confidence is that it's this all-encompassing quality that once achieved stays with you forever nothing could be further from the truth okay Confidence is very situation specific and confidence is very fragile. You have to keep at it. 
you because we live in such an imperfect physical universe mm. populated by physically imperfect human beings there are always going to be moments of imperfection and even if you're serena williams or bill gates you're going to have a below average day once in a while and you're going to have below average moments each and every day mm -hmm. so you got to work at it you've got to be willing to mine the last hour of your experience that meeting that you just concluded and you've got another meeting happening in 15 minutes you better mind that last meeting that you just concluded for a little bit of gold a little tiny gem what was the best thing that happened what did you do there that was effective mind that moment add that moment to your bank account mm -hmm. it's a small deposit but it's a deposit nonetheless mm -hmm. so because confidence is so fragile you have to stay with it there's no there's no uh decisive victory that can be won against the enemy of self-doubt and worry and fear it doesn't that battle does not end there's no atomic bomb that you can drop on the enemy and the enemy surrenders it's more like an ongoing insurgency it's always there you just have to deal with it and don't let that don't let that depress you or disappoint you no 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 as long as you are recognizing these enemies and dealing with them you are winning it's one little victory minute by minute hour by hour if you are doing that you are winning and for all you competitors out there in your audience just remember that the person you're competing against is facing the same battle mm -hmm. against his or her self-doubt worry fear and if you do just a one or two percent better job at defeating those enemies hour by hour than your competitor is doing well then you just created an advantage for yourself mm. so get excited about being your own best friend being your own biggest fan being your own greatest coach hour by hour without the expectation that at some point in your life you're never going to have to worry about it because unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. Well, I appreciate that, Dr. Sinsler. You have a lot of excellent tips and really clear ideas in your book, The Confident Mind Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance, and I would recommend it to listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for the privilege of participating with you, and I wish all the best to your listeners. also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. 
Therapy Through Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.